For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy December, everyone. It's December 1st. It's World AIDS Day. It's Christmas Lights Day. And I am saying au revoir to Facebook, but not completely. And I will explain in a few moments. I first of all want to thank all of you who are here today. And I'd like to raise my glass to all of you. I'd like to raise my glass to everyone who has lifted me up on Facebook for the past 14 years that I've been on it. And I also want to raise a glass to those who have not lifted me up. And they are the reason why I am making a decision today to take a breather from Facebook. And I will share my reasons with all of you. If any of you have any questions, comments, or anything that you just want to bring up, put them in the comments section and I will bring you all on. And I will uh, be glad to answer your questions and talk to you about my reasons. Um, everything started uh, in terms of the feelings that I've been having a lot of frustrations uh, over the last uh, few months uh, with uh, a lot of things uh, on social media. And uh, everything basically precipitated my move uh, when Elon Musk took over Twitter and a lot of the changes that were taking place there. And I made a decision to leave Twitter. Now, my use of Twitter was solely to promote uh, my uh, sh uh, shows that I've done and also to celebrate everybody else because that is what I'm about. I didn't get into any of the negativity that Twitter has out there. As a matter of fact, when those posts would show up in my feed, I would simply hit the block button. So the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses of the world, I did not see their tweets. Uh, unless I saw them on the news later that evening because they were deleted. So I made a decision that I was going to leave uh, Twitter when all of that began to happen. And then my dear friend, Tesla Bella, who I want to give a huge shout out to, she does all the voiceovers for, my, uh, for this show and for all the shows that I do. And I could not do it without her. Uh, so she uh, said to me, uh, when I told her, I called her because she had set up an account called Richard Skipper, uh, fans of Richard Skipper Celebrates. And she was sending uh, things out uh, daily uh, about who was on the show that night. And she was really on top of things uh, for, I guess, the past uh, more than half a year she's been doing this. And so she asked me if she should also leave Twitter. And I said, that's a choice that you will make, but deactivate that particular account. So she made a decision uh, and then she said, Facebook is next. She told me that she left Facebook eight years ago and she never looked back and that it truly changed her life. And I got to thinking about how all of us react to Facebook. I can only speak for myself, uh, but I it's it's taken me down a few rabbit holes that I would not like to go down any longer. And uh, I understand that if people feel that the presentation of their food 
uh, is something that they want to post about. Or, you know, all these postings of people sitting on planes going to their next gig when they write nothing at all about the gig. They don't tell us anything about where they're performing, what's going on or anything. It's just this, it's these photographs of just sitting on a plane or something. And I go, why do we do this? Why do any of us, myself included, feel a need that if something happens in our lives, that many, many times we rush to post it on Facebook? Not only uh, moments that are ending, uh, but uh, the moments as they're happening. Uh, I was on a, a boat with a friend uh, summer before last, and everything was going on Facebook every moment, uh, rather than being in the moment and being with everyone there. And a few weeks ago, one of my dearest friends, my director, in fact, of my last show, Jay Rogers, passed away. And uh, I found out about it when a friend of mine and I were just having a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, he said, too bad about Jay. And I said, Jay who? And he said, Jay Rogers. It's all over Facebook that he, I did, that he had passed away. It didn't show up in my feed. I didn't see it. But I called a friend of mine, our musical director. If he's watching, you know, he knows this happened. I called him up and I said, did you know that Jay passed away. And his response was, well, yes, darling, I knew about it yesterday. I figured you of all people would know about it because you're always on Facebook. Well, contrary to what some people may believe, I'm not always on Facebook. And that is a life event, the passing of a friend. And we have reached a point in our collective lives in which we will post a picture most likely with that person who has passed on, maybe an anecdote or two. And then we go on to the next item in our feed. And I've reached this point in my life where I feel that I no longer want to be just another item in people's feed. Uh, I want more. Uh, I desire more. And as my dear friend, Kasira McKee says, uh, instead of saying, I desire, say, I require more. And the answer is, I require more. I require more than just being a passing comment, a, a, a passing post, and then moving on. Um, I can post about uh, the, the day's shows, what's coming on that night or everything. And that item can sit there for many hours. It can sit there without a like, without a comment, without uh, a share. I can also post, I lost a button, and 500 people will respond to it. Um, I don't know what it is psychologically that causes us to go there, but as someone who is in a profession where it depends so solely on eyes and support and sharing, and a lot of you that are here uh, are very, very supportive in that department, I, you know, so I applaud all of you. But even with other artists, when I see a posting, and I've said this at the in so many of my shows, it takes very little effort to hit the like button, to hit a, lot, a comment button, or to hit a share. If it's something that's negative or whatever, I find or I see that those postings are getting a lot of hits. 
And I've done a lot of research on this. And I know a lot of people who are in our profession or in the business feel that, well, I'm on Facebook because I'm marketing, I'm promoting, I'm getting the word out. Well, I had someone today when I sent him the link for today's show say to me he had no idea that I had a show on YouTube. And this is someone who is a friend of mine on Facebook. My point is that a lot of people don't uh, really see uh, our postings. Uh, they And if they do, um, chances are, unless it is specifically about them, uh, there's no response to it. And that brings up another point. Uh, the narcissism uh, of Facebook is just too much for me to handle anymore. Uh, I will see postings, post, and I'm talking people that I respect in this business. I see, you know, uh, I'm on my way to do this show. I just did my show, um, the aftermath of my show. And I very rarely see them post about other people. And then I see some people who write about the shows that they've gone to see, and somehow they will find a way to make the fact that they went to that particular show about them. And again, instead of making it about uh, Judy, with all due respect, it's not good advertising. Uh, most of my posts are never seen. Um, you uh, sent me in a private message today um, a review that I never even saw on Facebook. There are teams of people, this is not a conspiracy theory, folks. There are people who are responsible for what shows up in our feeds. So I can post about my shows. I can post about what I'm doing. I can, and a lot of people do, and it very rarely is seen by at least 80 to 95% of the people who are, who call themselves my friends on Facebook. After Three years of doing Richard Skipper Celebrates and sharing these shows, almost daily, I run into someone who's, who's been a, a friend of mine on Facebook for the entire three years that I've been doing this, uh, who have no clue that I have a YouTube channel, that I've done any interviews, that I've done anything beyond the last performance that they saw me on stage, and that was before uh, COVID. And so I am really taking a real strong look at myself and what, um, you know, Sherry Callahan says that some of her friends say that they never see her post. They don't. There are only a handful of people that are seeing your post. And I find that a lot of time that I have spent uh, on, you know, with promoting my show, getting the word out there, trying to do what I can to build an audience and everything, there are, again, my collective group of people that are here for me on a regular basis. And I cannot thank you enough for all of this. Uh, but in the scheme of things, my postings are not being seen by a lot of people. And I will share something with you. I've gone through, you know, when I get the birthday uh, reminders, I go in and I look at the history, uh, unless it's p the names that I see here, that I do have a regular uh, relationship with. Uh, very few of uh, my posts, uh, we don't, uh, there are people that I have not had any interaction with on Facebook uh, at all 
during the last few years, uh, during COVID, uh, with anything. And I will go in and I will unfriend someone. Uh, and the truth of the matter is you don't unfriend true friends. Let's just start there. I am talking about clearing the space so that people who are interested in what I have to offer, hopefully will see it. Most people will find out that they have been unfriended when they send me a private message because they have something to promote. And I get it. We all are vying for as many eyes as we can on whatever our product is and whatever it is that we are putting out there. So that is one aspect of it that I am finding that for me, um, I, uh, and I'm going to go back to something I just said at the risk of sounding like a broken record. I desire and I require to be more than just another item in a newsfeed. And I feel that a lot of us, uh, by posting about going to a restaurant or going to the theater or doing any of the postings that we all post, uh, that we feel that somehow that is sharing that life experience with our friends on Facebook. And yet the truth of the matter is that as much as I love to see those postings, what I would love even more are for the very people that are posting these postings to reach out once in a while to say, I'm going to go see this show. Would you like to join me? Or I'm going to go to this restaurant. Would you like to join me? Instead of seeing what I've missed. And I want to be a part, like Dolly Levi, I am ready to rejoin the human race. I feel that I have spent too much of the last, and I am guilty of this as well. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone but myself. Uh, I, uh, D, uh, uh, Danielle, who, by the way, created that gorgeous overlay that you saw at the beginning of the show and is sponsoring this show. We're going to uh, talk about her work in a little bit. Uh, but Danielle says, even when we tag people, they sometimes don't see it. This is why we feel we need to depend on that less and communicate more. Absolutely true. Everyone's privacy settings are set in a way that if you tag someone that you feel that are going to see it, unless their privacy set settings are public, they are not going to see that. Um, my, uh, let's see, um, uh, Judy says, my comments are honest, fun, and interesting. I'm going to be bringing on someone in a few moments uh, because I'm going to be talking also about World AIDS Day. And I've got a very special guest that I see just popped up on the screen. So I see you, Valerie. I will be bringing you on in a few minutes. Um, I want to read some of these comments. I think Facebook limits the post we see to the small group of people we interact with the most. Danny Miller says, totally get your reason to take a break. I just hope I can still be aware when you have a show that day so I can watch. The best way, Danny, is to subscribe to the Skipper's Guide. That's my newsletter. Go to richardskipper.com and sign up for the Skipper's Guide, and it will keep you up to date with what's happening every week. Um, let's see. Um, I appreciate and totally understand your viewpoint, Richard. Personally, I like seeing the announcements of your shows on Facebook as a reminder to see them. <coughs> Excuse me. I appreciate that. But uh, it's all in the newsletter. And if you subscribe to Richard Skipper Celebrates, you'll get a notification when I am going to go live. So it is there. 
Um, how are you proposing alerting us that you are doing a YouTube? It's in my newsletter and I will be, uh, and it'll be going out there. And there are, and the fact of the matter with any of you, even though I'm physically not going to be there completely, uh, and I want to explain that in a moment, uh, feel free, any of you, to share that I am doing a show uh, and perhaps uh, other people will come on as well. Um, so, Daniel, I absolutely do love it. Um, there are also community posts here on Facebook. You can go and see. You know, I put postings there from time to time. I will be utilizing that. Now, to my astrologer and psychic friends, you'll know uh, I have decided that I will be popping in one day a month. And I will be, so when the new moon is cresting or peaking, the new moon, everybody, you will find me on Facebook that day, each month. I'm going to come on. I will do a Facebook Live. I will talk, uh, check to see who is around and communicate that way. But again, it's time for me to let go so that I can focus on getting live again. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate that. I truly, <coughs> excuse me. I am, I had uh, a lunch here today uh, for the concert that I'm doing uh, here in Spark Hill on the 10th. Uh, please come if any of you are able to. I had a rehearsal today and it was the first time that I have sung with anyone accompanying me on a piano in a long time. And I felt like I was truly alive again. And I have loved doing these shows. And I'm pulling back on that as well because I really want to get out there. Um, I'm going to bring on uh, my friend Valerie, who's waiting in the wings. Uh, and uh, I'm going to get her thoughts on social media so that she's aware of that. And then we're going to talk about uh, another issue that is uh, really very important today, and that's World AIDS Day. Uh, so uh, let's. Uh, so Scott Clark says he can't wait to see me in DC. Uh, I will let you know when tickets are available. Valerie, hello, there you are. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm well, thank you. How about you? I am doing fine. Have you been able to hear what I was saying? And uh, some of it, I came on mostly too late. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so. Um, what is your relationship with Facebook? I have none. <laughs> really? I, yes. Quite a while ago, I found that Facebook and I had to part ways. <laughs> um, if I'm not putting you on the spot, was it along the same reasons that I'm giving today? I think it was, I think that's part of it. But for, for me, the big thing was I was reading a post from my sister. My older sister posts pretty religiously. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was posting something about embroidery. And this was during all the political brouhaha's of 2016, around 2016 in that election. I have no idea what you're talking about. I know you don't. Nor does <laughs> anybody else. Yes. But um, I was kind of shocked that people jumped in and were sort of trolling her about embroidery. And I said, who, what, who? I really don't want to be part of this anymore. <laughs> and that's pretty much why I pulled back. I mean, I had originally even gone on Facebook to try to keep in touch with family members. But when it became 
overwhelmingly bad negative stuff, I had to pull away because it upset me. Well, and like I said, I've been doing a lot of research uh, on uh, deactivating my account and everything. And there are so many articles out there from people who have taken a break from Facebook, who have walked away from it and done all these things. And I, just in the research that I've done, I have found, you know, first of all, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, he has a goal that by 2027, the entire world will be caught up in the metaverse, as he calls it. And I really do find that it, it, and that frightens me. It frightens me. I believe that the country is where it is right now and is as divided as it is right now because of a lack of empathy. And also I feel that people are so caught up in posting about me, 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 that they are sometimes totally unaware of what's going on outside of their platform. And for those reasons, I just said, it's time for me to step away. I think if more people did that, it might send a powerful message. Yes. And again, I, you know, I am available by phone. I'm very accessible. Uh, Most of you have my phone number uh, and I'm available for dinners and theater and all those things that people post about. But I want to talk about something else today. Uh, And, you know, and uh, we may or may not come back to the subject later. But uh, today is World AIDS Day. And I want to let everyone know that I first became aware of you uh, when uh, I read about this book, which I an incredible read, uh, Nurses on the Inside. Um, You and uh, Ellen Matzer, and hopefully she'll be able to pop on if she makes it home in time. Uh, But you you were in the trenches uh, during uh, the AIDS crisis in New York. And, you know, it's very interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw American Horror Story. Did you just see the recent? I haven't seen, no, I haven't. (laughs) Well, it deals with the AIDS crisis, but the way that they deal with it in this, um, it's it, it's a superficial, horrific fantasy. Uh, it was happening, but the way they approach it and the way that they deal with it um, concerns me in terms of younger people who are not aware of what we lived through mm-hmm. and what we went through. Um, you were already in the nursing profession when you first heard about AIDS. Can you take us a little bit, you and I have talked about this in the past, but oh, for sure. those who are seeing and meeting you for the first time, can you take us back to when you first became aware of this, uh, what became this uh, global pandemic? Well, it happened in a very scrappy way at first. Uh, uh, we started to have patients in the ICU where Ellen and I worked, uh, who became very, very ill with uh, peculiar respiratory infections. And um, later on, we saw uh, discolorations of the skin, but mostly we were seeing very odd respiratory infections and then overwhelming oral uh, mucosal fungal infections, which is called thrush. Yes. And you just don't see that um, in, in people, adults. You see it in kids. It's a kid's thing. So, uh, and we really didn't know what we were dealing with at all. I mean, possibly we saw 10 or 15 patients before 
the, before the first uh, notification came out, that uh, which was from Morbidity and Mor Mortality Weekly Review, um, did a sort of synopsis of all these case reports that were happening in San Francisco. And so, uh, and the, the odd prevalence of a peculiar pneumonia called pneumocystis, it was called at the time pneumocystis carinii. So uh, we sort of thought that was just something that we were seeing. And um, as El Ellen always says, she thinks she met her first gay person in, in the ICU. Wow. She didn't know I was gay at the time. So, and she all, I don't know, maybe she, she sort of missed out on some of the people that we worked with as well. But, but she, nobody really put it together until possibly the sixth or seventh patient that, that most of them were men who have sex with men. And, um, and then somebody ended up in the ICU who was a physician who'd taken care of my father. And of course, you know, when I took my father to him, I knew he was gay, but uh, it, it, that was a peculiar eye opener for me as well. Um, then everybody started talking about it. In fact, when the, not only the media, I guess it was the media that called it GRIDS, gay-related mm -hmm. deficiency. I don't think that was an official title, but, but in fact, uh, it snowballed after that. Uh, but to try to give you an idea about how horrible it was, because people were so scared, uh, the people who were sick were scared, but the people who were caregivers were also scared. So they were scared and they tended to want to just uh, abandon these patients. And so, you know, Ellen and I were amongst the, the it was a big handful of nurses who said, hell no, we're not going to let this go. <laughs> these people go uncared for. Well, thank um, God. And, uh, but uh, I don't, I don't know if anybody ever saw Pose. Did, have you ever, did you see oh, Pose? Yes. Yes, Did you? Yes. So, um, you know, there were a couple of hospital scenes that actually my friend Todd and I consulted on to try to make it look as real as it was in those days. Um, uh, a very sick person alone in a private room uh, that was not necessarily nice, that was filled with dirty laundry and garbage and trays that were out of the patient's reach and trays of cold food that were left outside the room where the person couldn't get to them and um and basically a sense of abandonment everywhere so uh, the big themes for that were you know uh abandonment and also blaming the sick person for what he had and you know to put it also in another perspective in case that doesn't it isn't horrible enough for you um we uh, we got a, a woman in the ICU who was just horribly, horribly sick. And she had pneumocystis and thrush, but she had something else going on. Well, it turned out to be lymphoma, but um, not that we ever got that far. She didn't even make it to get a biopsy done because she came in and crashed and burned, basically. I mean, she, people would come in speaking. Two hours later, they'd be unconscious. Uh, Fifteen minutes later, they'd be on an in, intubated and on a ventilator, and then that would be that. And that was sort of the trajectory that we saw very recently in COVID, but in HIV, we saw it first. So people would get, they would, I think people really knew in a way that they were sick, but they were really did not want to engage in the healthcare uh, with healthcare and for a reason. So this woman came in, crashed and burned and very shortly died. And when her sister came in, her sister said, well, she was a prostitute. 
And so basically what the words, it's not that she was dismissing her sister because she actually cared about her sister, but I did hear people say, well, she's just another sick prostitute. And so people- I really certainly- think that was the general feeling that a lot of people felt that it was those people. And oh, this absolutely. Was- That's my point. My point yes. is, is that homosexuals in general were reviled and- um, and so we were all very closeted in those days. And then, uh, uh, you know, if people got sick and they thought it was related somehow to being gay, then it was your own damn fault and you were going to suffer the consequences. And we weren't going to pull out all the stops to try to fix you. And that really, that attitude pervaded for years really for years. And if it wasn't for, I mean, in New York, I, I, I didn't live anyplace else during this time. So I don't know how it was in the rest of the country. I, I imagine that in San Francisco, ACT UP uh, possibly uh, was just as active as they were in New York. But in New York, let me tell you, if it had not been for ACT UP, we'd still be treating people that way. Well, Larry Kramer was out there screaming for people to screaming. pay attention and nobody was listening to him. I know, but there was screaming and then there were disruptions in people's work and there were uh, all sorts of demonstrations. Anytime there was any kind of medical conference, there was a demonstration, certainly for any of the uh, any of the companies that made antibiotics. God help them if they wanted to have a conference because ACT UP was there um, making uh, making a ruckus and trying to get people to understand that something had to be done about this. And uh, while they targeted drug companies and politicians, eventually the word got out. And a lot of people, a lot of, may I say, gay people who were also physicians and scientists decided to really uh, look into this. And um, unfortunately, the first thing they came up with was AZT. And I'm not really sure that was any use, although statistically it was, but in any case, without going into the history with too much detail, um, it, it was a very, very slow going. I mean, we went more than 10 years with one drug and no decent therapeutics and really no understanding of the pathophysiology or the life cycle of the virus, which um, I credit to David Hove, who was then at Rockefeller University. Um, he actually figured out what the life cycle of the virus was so that then once you know the life cycle of the virus, then you can start to exploit its weaknesses. And that's what start, that's what needed to happen. And that didn't happen until 1994. So we're starting here in 1977 and uh, fast forward to 1994. That's quite a few years. Thank you very much. Yes, it is. Many, uh, look, I want to go back uh, to the beginning of all of this. Uh, what prepares you psychologically when you, uh, for anything like this? And, uh, were you feeling, um, I mean, you also as uh, a gay woman, uh, uh, were you p- pretty much closeted at that time as well? And were yes. there fears about coming out? At, you know, what was going on psychologically for you as this was all unfolding? Well, definitely, because in those days you didn't dare be out because it could who knew what your employer would say, who knew what your family would say. Um, It just wasn't done. So yes. Um, And I think men may have done, uh, gone uh, another step further 
in order to try to protect themselves from that kind of uh, damage. I mean, many of my patients who were overtly, I mean, they were clearly gay to me, had wives and other people who were, uh, who were there to sort of make it look as though they were in the mainstream. Um, and uh, I don't know if you say, how can you be prepared for something like this? I mean, I was in my 20s. I don't think I could be prepared for that. Um, and I, sometimes I see television shows where I, I see them send these young women into these situations, like Silence of the Lambs. Everybody's seen Silence of the Lambs, right? <laughs> I well, haven't, believe it or oh, not. Well, well, anyway, they send this real novice, extremely, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say she was naive, but she was very young, in to see this floridly psychotic person. And uh, a sociopathic person and and I every time I see that I say oh my god how dare they send her in there without any training or preparation I mean I had training I had some training and I had a few years under my belt as a nurse but I was never going to be prepared for the scope of loss and anguish that this uh, pandemic did to me what this did to me and uh, how many people died how often we cried how many funerals we attended um, but it also gave purpose to my life. Working in HIV care gave a complete purpose to my life in the way that any other subspecialty as a nurse never would have done for me. So it, it took much from me, but it gave me so much also. W working with people and, and being able to do what I could do as a nurse is, it, it's really incredibly empowering. Because in those days, there was nothing that medicine could do. There were no drugs. So all we could do was walk the journey with people and try to ameliorate some of the suffering and try to communicate well with their families and try to do the best that we could. And in many ways, that's all we can do in life is, is walk with somebody. And we were certainly competent and able to do that. And if anything gets gets uh, heard in the book. That's what I want people to hear. No. Again, everyone, mm -hmm. I mean, Nurses on the Inside, it's on a, available on Amazon. Read, read, read this book. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you've you created a, I don't even like to use the word fictionalized account of what was going on. You changed the names, obviously, to protect the people that uh, are uh, depicted in the book. Um, but these stories are all based on real life experiences. And oh, yes. yeah. the stories are real. The names have been changed. And mm -hmm. as I read this book, I mean, and I've told you this before, I cried like a baby reading this book because I remember uh, so much. And you look at what's going on right now in the world today. Um, you know, the fact that we're going to be codifying the same sex bill. Uh, but at the very same token, that is not everything that we need folks because there are some states that can still deny a person's right to get married in that state and i know of three instances and i'll give you one uh one of my dear dear friends uh passed away in the world trade center oh. and uh you know on 9-11 and his him and his uh partner they were not married at that time obviously uh, but they had been together 35 years. And when Jean uh, died, uh, the company, rather than giving what should have come to his spouse, 
uh, they went to see if there were any living re uh, relatives. They found a father that had left Gene and his mother when Gene was six years old oh. in North Carolina. They traced this guy down and, you know, Larry, his partner, ended up suing. Uh, and uh, I don't know really what the outcome of that case was because he signed a DNA. But uh, but the thing is that um, the, the fact that a couple, if one partner got sick, that I've seen families come in and break couples up that have been together for 40, 50 years. Uh, it, another friend of mine, uh, when his partner contacted AIDS and and then towards the very end, he was in a coma, the family came in and Tom and Ralph had been together 44 years and the family was able to come in and take everything that they could get and Tom was left with nothing. Yes, and, and, I know, I know stories of that like that too. It happened to my friend Joe. And it's just horrific that, it, you know, and I don't think that a lot of people realize uh, the, the importance of being able to marry your partner uh, beyond, you know, the obvious reasons. But that's a big, big reason right there. If God forbid that Danny and I, you know, who are legally wed, um, you know, supposing that our marriage, and this is not going to happen, thank God, but supposing we were in a state where it's not recognized and we were, God forbid, in an accident or something, uh, the other could be kept from actually, you know, seeing him in the hospital. Oh, I mean, I are, or making any decisions. Or making, you know, making life or death decisions that we need to make. Mm -hmm. uh, as as time was going on, I mean, you you had a mission, you had a job to do. Um, how did you deal with the frustrations of what was going on uh, out beyond uh, the actual being in the trenches? Uh, and when I, what I'm talking about essentially is how the world was responding to what was going on at that time. Well, do you mean how did I respond to that? How did you respond to it? Well, as Ellen always says, alcohol was a big part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things about nurses is that I think when you're young and you see horrible things, sometimes you just have to go out with people who saw them with you and hoist a few and thrash it all out in the bar. And we did that. We definitely did that. <laughs> um, but the other thing I did was I pursued advanced degrees. So <laughs> I taught myself more and more. And um, both Ellen and I got, uh, we, I were we both, I was an associate's nurse. I can't remember what Ellen's mm -hmm. first degree was. Um, and then we went for a bachelor's degree. And then I went on for my master's. And going to school where you go to the, for these advanced degrees with other nurses, that's another way of going to the bar without the alcohol. Um, but you get to write about it and discuss it and, you know, dissect it and learn other ways of coping. And I learned a lot by going to school, which you're supposed to do. But mm -hmm. it was also therapeutic for me with regard to dealing with some of my stress of, of working with uh in a, a subspecialty that was so, so stressful. Because not only was it hard to see people die, but you had to, um, <laughs> you had to deal with all the 
bullshit from the rest of the world about it too. I mean, floors in the, in the hospital that didn't want your patients there, or they weren't going to take care of them properly. And uh, you would ask physicians to intervene and they wouldn't, and uh, you would want to consult and they didn't want to do it. It was hard. It's hard to deal with that. Um, at the end of my tenure at one of the institutions where I worked, <clears throat> I was upset because they kept giving me smaller and smaller clinic space, even my, though my clinic was getting bigger and bigger and less and less time. And they would do these sort of passive aggressive things like not not allow my patients to register for afternoon clinic until one o'clock. And then all the clerks would all the registrars would go to lunch at one o'clock. So, um, and then I got nearly lost my job there because I would see the patients and let them register afterwards. And that was strictly forbidden, strictly forbidden. I did it for weeks before they even knew what I was doing though. I mean, they were so, (laughs) you know, don't get passive aggressive with me because I'll find a workaround, but that's the kind of those little ditzel things really did get to you after a while. Um, when did you feel that you began to see a shift that you began to feel that we were going to be coming through this? Uh, and again, I want to acknowledge the fact that as some of us, I mean, somebody recently said that she refused to celebrate birthdays anymore because of the number. And I said, I think of all the people that didn't make it to that birthday. Right. That, so uh, I, Every birthday, I well, I'm all about celebrating. Uh, and I lost a few friends myself. But when did you begin to feel a shift in the way things were, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, I would say uh, November of 1996. So that's when triple, um, triple therapy became uh, mainstream. That's when the... Uh, uh, you were able to quantify viremia because the viral load test, viral load test became um, very common to have and insurance started to pay for it. Um, and then in 97, as new therapeutics came along and they were better and better, um, I could really see that we were going to get out of this. Um, and by 1999, I had left uh primary care and gone to work in research, clinical research. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I saw a huge shift. I mean, that my entering the research arena didn't make this happen, but I happened to be there when it did happen. But uh, the, a huge emphasis and a fair bit of money got uh, spent in those days in order to try to uh, come up with uh, not only good therapeutics, but how you use them properly. And then the diagnostic testing, including... Um, including resistance testing. So what people probably never think about is that uh, that for many years we had no we had no lab tests that told us where we were going. Um, that happened in late 19, in November of 1996. Um, so it wasn't until I think late 97 or early 98 that we started to have any kind of resistance testing available. And that means that you can actually tell ahead of times what therapeutics, what drugs will work and what won't. And that's a huge leap forward. I mean, without resistance testing, we'd never know what antibiotics to prescribe. That's why if you go for an infection to the doctor, they say, oh, I want a urine test because I don't want to just treat your your urinary tract Mm -hmm. infection. I want to see what germ is growing in there. 
And the same thing for pneumonia. I want you to cough and spit in the cup so I can culture it. Not because it's sort of a disgusting thing to do, but it's really important. We need to know what germ is growing so we can give you the proper antibiotic. Well, the same thing didn't happen for HIV until, as I say, 97, 98. And it wasn't uh, insurance, didn't pay for it. It was fearfully expensive, like $2,000 a test um, in the beginning. Um, but those... Uh, those advances really made a huge difference. And also the number and types of therapeutics became refined and, um, and gave fewer side effects and uh, were more successful uh, at treating uh, early infection and even uh, uh, infections in people who had been through, run through a lot of therapeutic options. I mean, that was sort of my specialty in research was dealing with people who had sort of run through their options and trying to find new things to do or new ways to put together old drugs. So, no. um, so I would say 1996 was the first thing. And then the other, the huge shift was when protease inhibitors um, got refined. They came out, that was when the first one, sequinavir was released in November of 1996. Then came Ritonavir, and then Crixivan, and then a whole bunch of others. And then the different categories of drugs started coming out. And they had fewer side effects and were fewer pills. Because in 2001, we were still giving people 20 pills two to three times a day. I mean, it was terrible. And now we have six different formulations that are one pill once a day. That's a big change. And people are doing very well with much far fewer side effects. So I, I would say, though, that, um, uh, you know, I had great hopes in 96. And when I started research, I could really see that, uh, that things were going to get better. And now I, I would have to say a person who was a patient of mine in a, a study in 2005 uh, I was talking to him uh, in 2000, I guess in 2015, I was talking to him in 2015 wow. and he said to me, so one of these drugs going to stop working. And I said, what? And he said, don't they just stop working one day? And I said, no, as long as you take them, you'll be fine. And he said, what? Um, you mean I'm not going to die this year? He actually thought he had 10 years on the drug. Oh my side. God. Wow. And so he, after that, he said, well, I'm going to start dating then. And, and he did. <laughs> You're like his guardian angel. God bless you for being there to answer those questions for him. So, um, I said, you're going to live as long as anybody else. So <laughs> go, you better go out and date. <laughs> yes, thank God for that. Me, so. <laughs> so what was the spark that, I, I mean, you and Ellen, you know, you have this long history together, but getting back to the book, uh, what was the impetus for you to write this book? I know oh, there's this so much was all Ellen. It was all Ellen. She had uh, a reunion with some of her uh, childhood friends, and one of them is a professor. Um, and he, he, everybody asked, what do you do? And she said what she did, and she told about some of her, the work that she'd done and it came up about the AIDS epidemic. And he said, oh my God, you've got to write a book about that. He's a professor of history, of course. And um, so she said, oh, I can't write a book. And then she proceeded to jot down some of the things. And then she called me and she said, why don't we do this? And we did. And thank God, because it, it's an incredible book. I've got two questions that I want to ask before I let you go. And th the first one may seem like a silly question. Uh, but 
Could you imagine or something like this happening again? Yes, I can. I'm sorry to say, yes, I can. I mean, I think that in many ways I could have predicted COVID. I don't mean I personally could predict COVID, but one could predict COVID based on how we tend to treat our most vulnerable people. So I think that, okay, I'm just going to come out and sort of say the haves and the have nots. I think people who have a lot and are sort of elitist about what they have completely ignore the fact that they breathe the same air and for the most part, eat the same food and ride the same subway and live with the rest of us underlings. And they forget that if you live in the world, you have to take care of everybody in the Mm -hmm. world in order to take care of yourself. You can't just abandon one segment of the population because you don't think that they're worthy. That's just um, insane. (laughs) And in many ways, that is a little bit about what happened with COVID. Now, COVID wasn't exactly a disease of the have-nots. It, it was a great leveler. And in many ways, uh, I was uh, not surprised that something like that happened. But something will happen again that will happen only to women. I mean, there are many illnesses that happen only to women, and they're just totally ignored. Um and or the therapeutics for them are ignored or the diagnostics are ignored. Every time I have a mammography, I say, you know, I'm not sure if men had breast cancer to the degree that women did, that this would be the screening diagnostic. Well, um, you're probably right. Yes. I, don't, I don't know. I'm I just can't saying. even imagine what <laughs> I can't. Um, but before I let you go, I would like to ask um, on this World AIDS Day, and you know, and this is the, the entire month, by the way, everyone. Uh, December is World AIDS Month. Uh, if you can make uh, it, AIDS is not something that's in our rearview mirror. Uh, people not are living with HIV today. Uh, people are still mm-hmm. getting ill. Uh, please, 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 if you're able to contribute to any uh, of the organizations or anything, uh, please do so. I want to mention. Uh, because I've talked about her in my show, I was lucky enough to meet Elizabeth Taylor. And, uh, you know, and, and I always say I was kissed by Elizabeth Taylor. But a lot of people think it was because of Rock Hudson that she got involved uh, with uh, her entire Elizabeth Taylor Foundation and Amphar. It happened because she was on vacation in Rome and she walked into an AIDS ward she saw a patient and she asked the patient if there was anything that she could do for him. And he said, I could use a hug because no one will come near me. I get emotional thinking about it. And that changed her life. And God bless her because she worked tirelessly and she was out there fighting uh, on behalf of our community and on behalf of everyone living with AIDS uh, at a time where people would not even say the word. And uh, God bless her for all the work that she did. But what message would you like to leave everyone with today on this World AIDS Day 2022? 
Um, I, I want to remind people that one in eight people have HIV and don't know it. So that if you think there's a, any possibility that you could be at risk, please get tested. Don't be afraid of therapeutics. Don't be afraid of taking medicines. And don't be afraid to engage the healthcare system because it has changed so much in the 40 years since I've been uh, started as a nurse. And in many ways, it was due to ACT UP and to people like Larry Kramer and people like Ellen and even me to try to change things so that it's a lot more welcoming and uh, easy to engage with. So please, if you think you're at risk or know somebody, don't hesitate to get tested. And, um, and I applaud that uh, your request to have people donate to support organizations. And I, I echo that sentiment. So uh, I want to come up to what what's happening with you? I mean, we're going in. Uh, how are you in your days? Is, are you writing another book that we should know about? I don't know. I may be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not even it's very germinal, if anything. But um, I am retired is, now, Richard. <laughs> I would love for this to be a miniseries. So I can, oh. you know, uh, because it is such an incredible book. And I thank you for coming in today and being a part of today's show. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you and Ellen and all the work you do. And please, uh, Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-Y, uh, right. <laughs> please uh, uh, look them up on Amazon. Uh, and uh, please keep up with what they're doing because you're doing phenomenal work. Thank, thank you this. so much. Thank you. I'm going to... Uh, I'll take you off and uh, and then I'll uh, wrap up the today show. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow. I am so glad that she was available to come on. Ellen had reached out to me um, to see if I was going to be doing anything I, uh, after my newsletter went out uh, because I had mentioned uh, that uh, I was going to be doing a show today talking about World AIDS Day. And Ellen had reached out to me. Originally, I was going to do the show at five o'clock. And then I got a call this morning from a friend, uh, not realizing that I had a dinner engagement at six o'clock this evening. Uh, so uh, I had to move everything up an hour. And so I appreciate the fact that Valerie was here. Uh, again, I cannot say enough about this book, uh, Nurses on the Inside. Uh, and it's riveting. I mean, the stories, what they went through, they were in the trenches. They were there. Um, I am uh, going to give a little acknowledgement uh, to, uh, not a little acknowledgement, an acknowledgement uh, to uh, one of my sponsors. Uh, first of all, I am very, very fortunate. Erin uh, Califf, uh, who uh, is sponsoring these shows, uh, has done a phenomenal job for me. So I want to give a, a big shout out to her. And I also want to thank my friend Danielle. Uh, she, of course, and I'm telling you, everyone, she is incredible at what she does. If you're looking for the perfect gift this season, uh, gift them or yourself a spiritual session with Danielle. Uh, she is just absolutely wonderful, and she's been a great support to me on so many levels. Um, I'm going to let her tell you in her own words, and then I will uh, say my goodbyes today. Uh, 
here she is. Hello, Richard Skipper Celebrates family. Happy and blessed holidays, everybody. I am so thankful to have gotten to know so many of you this past year. And if you've been wanting to work with me, I wanted to let you know I'm having holiday specials on my website, Damsel Designs, D-A-M-C-L Designs.com with buy one, get one holiday offers, gift certificate specials, payment plans, and more. There really is no shortage of ways to work with me this season or to invest in energy for yourself or your loved ones. I would love to help connect you even beyond the worlds of spirit and spirit animal medicine and help you understand more of your own energy, work through patterns, deep dive and rise to create the life that you love. I will see you in the comments and happy holidays, everyone. And she's wonderful. Please, please, please do yourself a favor. Uh, she's my psychic soulmate. I just love her so much. And like I said, she created the incredible overlay uh, for today's show. Uh, in the last couple of hours, she surprised me and sent it to me. It was really wonderful. So I thank you. Again, I want to thank you all uh, for the support that you've shown me, not only here on YouTube, but on Facebook and on the other social media platforms that I have been a part of. Um, this is not a complete goodbye. Uh, like I said, when the new moon comes back, uh, so will I for one day. Uh, but it's time for me to really focus uh don't be sad for me because I am excited. I'm excited about getting back in touch with my equity card came today, my equity card, you know, so I pay my dues, uh, religiously. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I want to get back to, uh, what brought me to New York in the first place. Um, if any of you are going to be in Washington, DC in March, on March 18th, thanks to Parker Nolan. Uh, he reached out to me and he booked me at Crazy Ann Helens, uh, which is a supper club in uh, Washington, DC. I'm doing a show called Plate Spinners, Jugglers, and Richard Skipper. Tales of a life in show business. Uh, stories about Carol Channing and Elizabeth Taylor uh, and Neil Sedaka and Mitzi Gaynor. And so many, a lot of name dropping. Uh, but isn't that what you want to see in the show? Um, and some singing as well. I, and some great stories that I want to share with everyone. So this is just, a, you know, a little pause for a few weeks. Um, I will be back just before Christmas. Uh, if you are anywhere in New York uh, and can get to Rockland County, it's not as scary as it sounds. Uh, on the 10th of uh, th this month, I am doing a concert uh, celebrating Christmas memories uh, with Leroy Reams and Carolyn Montgomery, Rita Harvey, Neil Berg, uh, John P Patrick Schutz, uh, Maria Atavia, uh, Regina Zona, uh, Deborah Stone. I have an incredible cast of people who will be joining me. I thank you all. You all lift me up on levels that you have no idea uh, that you do. Uh, on a regular basis. So as I say au revoir, uh, just remember, I may not be on Facebook, but you can reach me in other ways. Uh, thank you and everybody have a great December. There are lots of possibilities ahead. And the word of the day is openness. There it is on my desk. Be open to all possibilities and it's all in your hands. So on that note, uh, Valerie, thank you for being here. Thank you all for being here. And uh, I will see you uh, tomorrow afternoon on my YouTube channel uh, with my Friday wrap-up show. And I have five amazing people 
that are going to be joining me tomorrow. So join me at five o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And on that note, I love you all and have a great night. <laughs>